On behalf of Stacey and I and our family, we want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. As we gather around with our families, we'll be thinking about each and every one of you uh, because of the incredible blessing it is to be a pastor here at Bentree and the great joy and honor and privilege to, to lead our church here. So we're so thankful for what the Lord is doing. And as you gather with family, you might find yourself passing gravy onto somebody who doesn't agree with you politically. Okay, you like my segue there from Thanksgiving to politics? <laughs> Most likely, you'll be sitting around a dinner table with people who may not align with you politically. And maybe you've had one or more Thanksgivings that have been ruined because of politics. Okay, a few of you are nodding your heads, okay? More than I was hoping to see, but it can happen. In fact, in 2016, they did a study that in 2016, because of how polarizing our politics became here in America, uh, family members stopped going to their own Thanksgiving gatherings hosted by their own family members because of opposing political views. They say, you know what? We're gonna sit Thanksgiving out this year. And for those who did go, based on a large study of 10 million some cell phone users, they said that if you went to a Thanksgiving lunch or dinner in 2016, your gathering lasted half an hour shorter than usual. It was cut short by half an hour, also because of opposing political views. Well, I sure hope that's not the case for you this year. Not that we wouldn't have disagreements, but that our disagreements politically won't lead to disunity and disorder. If you think about it, the Church of Jesus is a large family. We are a global family. And today there are Christ followers, believers in Jesus, who gather from every country in the world. Just think about it. The Church of Jesus gathers on a weekly rhythm, kind of like today. And every time we gather, it's a family reunion. And I hope it's a place where we invite and we welcome guests and friends to come and attend and just be a part and belong to this community of faith. When you gather in your home or anywhere on campus for a small group experience or a Bible study, you are gathering not just with a random group of people, but with family. And just as any family may have, we may have some disagreements along the way and even may have political disagreements but our disagreements don't have to lead to disunity. That's why we said last week that we may disagree politically, but we can agree morally and love unconditionally. We may have a difference of opinions on politics, but when it comes to God's word and how God defines morality, we can agree on those things and love unconditionally. Today, I want to bring our attention to a critical scene that happens in the New Testament right in the middle of Passover week or Holy Week. Jesus will culminate in this week with his betrayal, his crucifixion. But right in the middle of Holy Week, there is a conversation that happens and how Jesus reframes how Christians, followers of Jesus, will engage with government with the politics of their day. And here's a conversation that happens right in the middle of Passover week. In Mark chapter 12, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. So by now, Jesus has already ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's already flipped the tables at the temple and the religious leaders are angry. They're upset and they are in to get Jesus. So here, the Pharisees and the Herodians come to trap Jesus. The Pharisees were the most religious, religiously devoted people of their day. They were devoted to Israel and to the law of God. 
The Herodians were on the other side of the spectrum. They were not religious at all. They were devoted to Caesar and to the Roman Empire. They were also Jews, but not nearly as devoted. On the political spectrum, the Pharisees were the far right wing of their day, and the Herodians are the far left wing of their day. And as you can imagine, they did not get along. In fact, they despised each other. They hated each other, except for in this moment where they have found a common enemy. Now, sometimes your enemies become friends because you have a greater enemy together. And that's the case here. Here, the Pharisees and the Herodians are out to get Jesus. So they said, let's get Jesus and trap him by his word. So they've come to Jesus to trap him. When they came, they said to him, teacher. Now, notice all the false flattery of how they're going to butter up Jesus. Teacher, we know you are truthful and you don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. And here's a question that throw out to Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Should we pay tax to Caesar or should we not? Rome had multiple kinds of taxes on the Jewish people. Oftentimes, it was heavy and burdensome, taxes on what they earned and what they imported, the crops of the land. But most scholars say here, this tax was the poll tax, P-O-L-L, poll tax. And this tax pretty much said, if you were breathing, if you were alive, you had to pay Caesar a denarius, which was about a day's wage. And this was the way of Caesar saying, I'm really the one in charge here, and you owe it to me to be alive. You ought to thank me just for being able to live in my Roman Empire. So this was the denarius. This was the poll tax. And this was burdensome because this was one per person. For families who didn't work or they earned just a little bit, this tax was heavy and burdensome. And here the Pharisees know, oh, we got Jesus because of course Jesus is going to say no to this question. He's a Jewish rabbi speaking to a Jewish people surrounded by a Jewish audience. Of course, he's going to say, no, you don't have to pay Caesar, who thinks he's God, a pagan, idolatrous king. He don't need to pay him a tax. And the moment Jesus, if he says no, the Herodians are right there. And the Herodians have access to Herod and to Pilate and to the Roman Empire. And they will go immediately, because all of those players are in town for Passover, they can go immediately to the Roman Empire and say, hey, we found the next insurrectionist. We found the man who was encouraging people to rebel against Rome and not pay their taxes. And immediately before the end of the day, Jesus could be arrested. The Pharisees knew that the theological claims Jesus was making wouldn't get him arrested. But if he could cross the line politically, if we can just get him to cross the line politically, then he would be arrested. Now, if there was any chance that Jesus would say yes to this question, yeah, pay Caesar the tax, then the crowd that's been following Jesus, they would leave him. Because no Messiah is going to tell you to pay homage to a pagan Gentile Caesar. They've set him up in a loose-loose situation. If he says no, he'll be arrested as an insurrectionist. If he says yes, he loses his influence with the people that have surrounded him. So what does Jesus do? Notice verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he saw right through their flattery. He said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. Bring me a denarius. Here's a picture of a denarius. It was the Roman coin that had on it engraved the image of the emperor. 
And at this time, it was the emperor Tiberius. So on one side was his face, and around it was an inscription that read, Tiberius Caesar, Caesar being the title for king. King Caesar, or Tiberius, uh, King Tiberius, Augustus, another designation, son of the divine Augustus, meaning son of God. So, so far on this inscription is Caesar is king, and he is son of the divine or son of God. On the other side was another image with the inscription that said uh, Pontifus Maximus. Pontifus Maximus, which meant that Tiberius was designated as the high priest of the day. As the highest authority in the Roman state religion. So if you think about it, this coin is saying Tiberius, the emperor, he is king. He is the son of God and he is the high priest. By the way, those are the titles that Jesus uses of himself. King, son of God, and high priest. Enemy loves to create a counterfeit for whatever God creates. That's exactly what is happening. So Jesus will say, okay, bring me a denarius to look at. And they bring him a denarius. denarius. And the next verse says in verse 16, whose image? So Jesus is now throwing the question to them. They brought him a coin and the image is, the Jews don't carry this coin because it bears the image of a sea, of an emperor, of a pagan emperor. So they're having to go to Gentiles to find a coin and they finally bring it to Jesus. And Jesus asks the question, whose image and inscription is this? He asked them, Caesar's, they replied. Caesar's. Can you imagine Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of God, who is our high priest? He holds a coin of an emperor in being an imposter. And Caesar, his image is on it, claiming to be king, son of God, and high priest. And the Pharisees are thinking, yeah, it's Caesar's, Jesus, claiming things that he's not. So go ahead, lay it in. I theologically disprove that he is not king, son of God, or high priest. Here's the moment, Jesus. And notice what Jesus will say. Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed. Jesus is saying, okay, if Caesar's image is on the coin, give him the coin. If his image is on it, it rightfully belongs to him. So just give him the coin. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But... Here's where everything changes. But give to God what is God's. Jesus is saying Caesar's image is on the coin, but he's inviting his listeners to ask themselves the question, whose image is on you? Caesar's image is on the coin, but whose image is on you? And of course, this Jewish audience knows God's image is on us. We are made in God's image. So Jesus is saying, give to Caesar what is rightfully his, his coin, but give your whole life to God because you, your whole sense of being, your whole life rightfully belongs to God. Submit to government. Give Caesar what is rightfully his. Give the emperor what belongs to him. But your highest allegiance does not belong to Caesar. It belongs to God. You can pay Caesar honor, but you only give worship to God. This moment reframes everything in the minds of his listener because up until this moment, the way that the government was set up, that it was totalitarian or it claimed absolute allegiance from people. 
So the emperor was not just a political leader, but he was also the religious supreme leader. Like Tiberius and others in Rome, the emperor considered himself God, a divine being. And emperors and governments claimed to be God's representatives and God themselves, and so they demanded total allegiance from people. But Jesus comes into the scene, and he says, actually, no, they don't have total demand and control of your life. Give to Caesar what is appropriate, but that giving is limited. He draws a boundary around the reach of government. And he says, your highest allegiance is not to a party or a president or an emperor. Who you are as a human being totally is given over to God. Your highest allegiance is not to Caesar. It's to God. Your worship is to him. Your trust is in him. So never give Caesar what belongs to God. See, when we don't give to government, when we don't give to Caesar what is rightfully his, that's disobedience according to Jesus here. But when we give to Caesar the things that only God is worthy of, that's idolatry. That's idolatry. Because we are placing hope and trust and confidence in a person that is never able to carry the weight of that. So we give to Caesar what is his, and we give God what is God's. Our whole self, our highest allegiance, our worship belongs only to God. Jesus draws a boundary around the reach of government. So today in our world, when Jesus and Caesar coexist, when God and government are in the same place, how do Christians, how do we as believers engage with the government and the politics of our day? I'm so glad you asked me that question because I've got something I want to share with you. I want to give us, Bentry, five rules of engagement and how we engage in politics. And this, I believe, is helpful for you this week on Thursday as you gather with family. And I believe this is going to be so helpful for us in the next 12 months during another election year. Five rules of engagement when Caesar and Jesus are in the world. How do we engage as followers of Jesus, highest allegiance to God, and yet to give Caesar what is Caesar's? Here's number one. We engage prayerfully. The first rule of engagement is prayer. Prayerfulness. In 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to a young Timothy. And he is writing in chapter 1 about how to fight the good fight and keep the faith. And he begins to give him a set of instructions in chapter 2. But notice what he begins in how to live out our faith in a highly politically contentious time. Paul will say to Timothy in verse 1, I urge you then, first of all, here's the first of the instructions for you, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. Do you know who is emperor, who is king during this time when Paul is writing to Timothy? It's the emperor Nero. Nero, and you couldn't find a more evil, perverse, violent emperor than Nero. He slaughtered Christians and did vehemently horrible things against believers. But Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, I want you to pray for him. I want you to pray not just for him, but all those in authority with all prayers and thanksgiving and petition. Intercede, pray for that person. Paul doesn't say pray about them, pray for them. We like to pray about a whole lot of people, don't we? 
<laughs> and when we pray about them, we're going to God and say, God, I need you to change their mind. Like you and I both agree that they're in the wrong. So I just need you to tell them that they're in the wrong. We're praying about people. That's not prayer. That's political venting. There's a world of difference between praying about and praying for. When we pray for people, we say, God, you know so-and-so. You love them. They're made in your image. You care deeply about them. They've got a family. They go to bed at night wondering if they did it right. So, God, I'm praying for wisdom. I'm praying that today, right now, wherever they are, they feel your grace, your love, your power. I'm praying for their family. I'm praying for the desires and dreams of their life. May they encounter your grace. That's praying for somebody. Just imagine how differently our world will engage in politics if we engaged politics with a posture of prayerfulness. In fact, what if we didn't give ourselves permission to engage before praying? We didn't give ourselves permission to criticize or to praise or to post without praying first. How differently would the world be? There may be things that you're right about. But the first instruction on this rule of engagement is engage in politics, engage in the world that we're living in out of a heart, out of a posture of prayerfulness. Imagine just if people actually prayed before they posted. Prayerfulness, the second rule of engagement. We are prayerful as believers. Second of all, we are peaceful. Peaceful. Paul goes on in chapter 2, as he writes to Timothy, he says, pray for kings and all those in authority. Why? That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved. This is God's heart. Wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul is saying, when you pray, the political angst of your heart is transformed into peaceful engagement. The political angst of our heart, of our mind, is transformed into peaceful living, peaceful engagement. Because there's something that happens when you go to God in prayer and you begin to speak to God. You begin to remind yourself of who is really in charge. And you realize it's not Caesar who is king, it's Jesus who is king. And you get a glimpse of God as Isaiah did in chapter 6 of Isaiah. I saw the Lord seated on the throne. And then you come to the realization that the highest power in the land doesn't belong to the White House or the Capitol. The highest power in the land belongs to God who sits enthroned in the heavens. He is king. He is Lord forever. And you realize God is not worried about the next election. He's not pacing back and forth. He's not wringing his hands wondering what am I going to do? He is fully seated with all power and authority. And from that glimpse of a God seated on the throne, we can engage with peace. I have to be anxious, overly fearful. We can engage with a posture of peacefulness. In fact, if you are continually losing peace, and that the politics of our day is robbing you of inner peace, I would ask you to consider, have you misplaced your trust? Have you, have I, have we misplaced our trust? Have we taken the source of our hope, the source of our peace, away from the Prince of Peace to some candidate or party out there? It's easy to do in the climate we're living in. Perhaps the loss of peace 
directs us to a misplacement of our trust. Paul says, when you live peaceful lives like this in godliness and holiness, it pleases God. Who wants all people to come to a knowledge of him? What Paul is saying is our inner peace during a politically tumultuous season, our inner peace is both an act of worship and evangelism. It's an act of worship when the world is going disarray, but there is an unshakable peace where you are expressing your confident trust in a holy God, in a powerful God. That's an act of worship. It pleases God. But Paul says it pleases God who wants all people to know him, meaning as people see you not coming unglued and unraveled in a chaotic season, they begin to wonder, how do you have this peace? Where do you get this from? How come you're not shaking? How come you're not going crazy? Why are you not freaking out? And you can say it's not anything in me on my own. It's because of the Prince of Peace who has taken full residency in my heart. And I know he's Lord and he's King. So I'm not going to lose peace. As a people, we are prayerful and we are peaceful. Third of all, as believers in Jesus, we are also powerful. We are not a powerless people. We are actually power-filled people. But here's the deal. Our power doesn't come from below. It comes from above. The power of a believer doesn't come from social, political, or financial factors. Our power comes only from God. It's not social or political or culture. It's spiritual. It's not from earthly places we get our power. It's from a heavenly place we receive the power of Almighty God. I want you to notice a unique moment also in the ministry of Jesus where right after Jesus raises Lazarus, there's a moment of power struggle among the religious leaders. Notice this moment in John 11, verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did, meaning he raised a dead Lazarus to life, they believed in him. Of course, they're going to believe in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. You would think they would now adore Jesus and worship Jesus. Well, what did they do? So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? What you should do is surrender. Now they're thinking, what are we going to do since people are starting to believe in him? And notice this, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Well, duh, that's the point. (laughs) But if we let Jesus go on, they're going to believe in him. And notice the next phrase, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. This is one of the first times you see religion, politics, faith, nationalism, all merging together, and then there's Jesus. The Pharisees were convinced that if people began to believe in Jesus, they would lose their place and their nation. They would lose their earthly influence and earthly power. So they begin to plot to crucify Jesus. Jesus is raising the dead. He is healing the sick, opening blind eyes. The Son of God literally is right in front of them. But out of fear for losing their place and their nation, their influence and their earthly power, what do they do? Instead of worshiping Jesus and being open to Jesus, they plot to crucify Jesus. They missed out on the Son of God out of fear for losing 
earthly power. They thought to themselves, the only way God can accomplish his purpose in the world, the only way God can use us as part of his plan is for us to retain earthly power and to retain our place in our nation and to retain favor with the Roman government. So instead of yielding their heart to Jesus, they missed out on him and in fact decided to crucify him out of a fear of losing power and place. That's a dangerous place to be when we begin to rely on earthly power and earthly influence more than on heaven's power, more than on heaven's kingdom, on the spiritual power of Jesus Christ. It's a dangerous place to be. I've literally heard Christians say that the future of Christianity is dependent on the next election or the fate of our faith is dependent on who's in the White House. That is absolutely incorrect. The future of Christianity isn't dependent on a party or a president. The future of our faith and of our Christianity is dependent on Jesus who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Whatever happens, I am forming a people. I'm building my church because of my power that is at work in them. In fact, what you realize when you look across church history is that the church of Jesus grew rapidly. They became vibrant and transformative. They were powerful. They exploded like wildfire in seasons when they lacked most earthly influence. In seasons where they didn't have political power and cloud, that's actually when the church of Jesus thrived. And today, if you look at countries in the world where Christians are most persecuted, they have no rights, no liberties, no freedoms. Most persecuted churches in the world. And on the other side, you put where the church of Jesus is growing most rapidly. It's the same list. Because when people aren't experiencing earthly power, they go on their knees and say, God, we can't live a single day without you. Our power is not here, it's you. So empower us. Give us strength we don't have. Give us a supernatural power because our power isn't social power or political power. It is a spiritual power. So am I thankful for the liberties we have in America? Absolutely. Do I pray and hope and vote for those to stay? Absolutely. I'm thankful for Christian men and women who are in offices and running for office. And I'm praying that every sphere of government and culture will have Christ-following, Christ-like people in positions of influence. I do pray and long for that. But I never rely on it. It's never our hope. It's not in any person or party. Our hope is in Christ alone and the power of the Holy Spirit. The church of Jesus must always and only rely on the Holy Spirit's power, not on anything else. Always and only rely on spiritual power and never on culture, political, or social power. We are powerful people, but our power doesn't come from below. It comes from God. So we're prayerful, we're peaceful, we're powerful. And the fourth rule is this. We are prophetic. Did you know that we can be peaceful and prophetic at the same time? We are people, when we don't rely on earthly power, but on spiritual power, on God's power, we actually carry out a prophetic vocation in the world. And when I say prophetic, I'm not talking about simply predicting the future. 
When I say prophetic, I'm talking about bringing an alignment in our world to God's view for the world. Bringing alignment in our world along every sphere of life and aligning our world and the worldviews of our world with God's vision for the world, God's plan for the world, God's plan for freedom and justice and righteousness, his plan for the flourishing of all people, us as a church, standing in the gap with a prophetic vocation, bringing alignment with God's vision and the world we live in. When you look at the story of scripture, God's people who are called by him, they found themselves bringing a prophetic vision to the world. And often they found themselves directly engaging, even confronting with political authorities of their day. Think about Moses who goes directly to Pharaoh and says, let God's people go free. You think about Daniel who goes directly to King Nebuchadnezzar and calls him to repent of his sin. Think about the prophet Nathan who goes to King David and calls him to repent of adultery and murder. You think about Esther who goes to King Ahasuerus and calls him to save God's people. Think about Deborah who was both a prophet and a judge calling forth the vision of God in their world. You think about Elijah who, can, who confronts Ahab of stealing land. You think about Amos who began to prophesy the consequence of unrepentant sin in the land. You think about John the Baptist who would go directly to King Herod Antipas for taking the wife of his brother. Oh, people of God were peaceful, but they didn't let go of their prophetic vocation to call wrong, wrong, and right, right. And they lived out of this prophetic vocation that God had a vision for the world. And when they didn't see the world in the right alignment, they used their voice, their influence, their stage to call into alignment their world to God's worldview. So in the new covenant, who is that prophetic voice? It's us. It's the church. In fact, Paul would say like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore we, meaning you and I, we are ambassadors of Christ. Since God is making his appeal through whom? Through us. This is how God makes his appeal to the world. It's through us. And what is his primary appeal? We plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God makes his appeal to the world, his vision for the world, for us to trust in Christ, his view of the world. He says, come, church, and let me make my appeal every day to the world through you. We have a prophetic witness we bear in the world. That's why when communism was running rampant in Europe, it was Christians who stood up and said, no. They stood for religious liberties, and they stood for human rights, and they stood against censorship and oppression. When Nazism was running through Germany, it was Christian men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and women like Carrie Ten Boom who said, this is not right. We don't belong to Caesar. We belong to God, and the government has overreached its boundary. It was men like William Wilberforce in the 19th century when they saw the transatlantic slave trade who would stand up and said, this does not bode well with God's vision of equality for all people. So they would start societies and campaigns to align the world with God's vision that would abolish slavery. This was a prophetic call that Martin Luther King Jr. had. His dream was God's dream. A prophetic voice in his generation during the Civil War movement for equality and justice. Great sisters of the faith were prophetesses like Mother Teresa and Catherine Booth and Amy Carmichael and Lottie Moon who carried God's prophetic vision for the poor and marginalized. 
when you look across Christian history, what you realize is that a prophetic church shapes the conscience of the world. A prophetic church shapes the conscience of the world. It changes how people perceive reality and think. See, the early church, their first and foremost goal was not to change the laws of the land. That came later. Their first mission was to change the conscience of their neighbor, of their city, of their nation, of the world. And when people's conscience was transformed by the power of the gospel and by the word of God, then laws were transformed. And cities were radically changed. But again, it began with people saying, we have a prophetic voice in our generation. And God is calling us to reshape, reform the conscience of our society. Being prophetic does not mean going on social media and blasting everybody that you don't agree with. Being prophetic does not mean rioting or looting. It does not mean inflicting pain or shame. Often, being prophetic is incarnational. It is relational. It is stepping into hard moments and conversations, into proximity with people you disagree with, and calling people into an alignment of God's vision for the world. And at times, being prophetic does bring you in front of politics and governmental leaders. But even in those moments, it is out of a motivation to love God and to love people well. And we are courageous even in moments of confrontation because we see a prophetic vocation for the church in the world. When Jesus said to his followers, you are the light of the world, he was describing the prophetic nature of the church, not a nation, but of the church. That God would save the world not by saving a nation, but by saving people in every nation. So like today, every country having a believer is a light, and the purpose of a light is not just for the purpose, it's not just for the person who is a light, but for those who have yet to find light. That's the prophetic nature of a believer, that our life would shine, it would shine brightly in such a way that people who are still in darkness would see the light of God. And when there are believers in every country of the world, Bearing a prophetic witness for the Lord, for Jesus Christ, for the worldview of the scriptures of God's desire for the world. Our whole world experiences the light of God. And we bear the prophetic witness designed for the church, the ambassadors of Jesus, wherever we are. Here's the last rule of engagement. We are purposeful. We are prayerful, peaceful, powerful, prophetic, and we are Purposeful. There is a great purpose. In fact, the greatest purpose of our life that we never relinquish in all of our engagement. And this is what Jesus said in John 17 as he's praying for the unity of the early believers. He's constantly praying, Father, make them one. But the goal of the prayer is not unity. Unity was a means to a far greater goal, which is so that they may believe that you sent me. God, make them completely one, as Jesus says, so that the world will know that you sent me, that you love them. Jesus is saying, I'm praying for unity because it's your unity that makes the gospel believable. Your unity is the greatest apologetic of who Jesus is. Jesus is saying, the greatest goal that I have in prayer to the Father is that through the church, people will know Christ, Christ crucified, Christ was That's our greatest purpose, church. Before Jesus ascended, he gave the great commission and he said, go therefore and make more Republicans of the nations. 
No, no, no. Go, therefore, and make more Democrats. No, no, no. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. The world is changed. People coming to know Christ, being disciple, and their conscience being transformed by the Holy Spirit of God. I read this last week, but notice what Paul said. Paul, who took the Great Commission seriously, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 9, all the different people groups he has a heart to reach, the Jew and the Gentile, those without the law of God, those with the law. He goes through a whole list, and he concludes a section in verse 22 by saying, I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll lay down some of my traditions and preferences, even non-essential beliefs, if it means that I can just get a few more people to follow and see Jesus. Paul says something that I don't know I'll say. He says, I'll even become weak. I'll become weak for the sake of the weak if it means that they can follow Jesus. I think Paul would say to our day and our age, If it comes down to you and I proving a political point or someone coming to know Jesus as Savior, always choose the latter. Yes, there are great purposes to live for and great noble causes to do, but this is our greatest purpose, to live a life where we never lose gospel influence with friends and lost family members and neighbors in our community because this is the purpose of the church to see people coming to know Jesus. So I want you to look at this list again, this diagram. In the last few election cycles, not here at Bentry, but churches, many churches, not all, but many churches, led poorly in a very divisive political climate. Maybe they thought they were being prophetic, but they left out peacefulness or prayerfulness. Maybe one of these key principles was left out. And therefore, church members became divided, even hostile to one another. We became a people who sometimes assigned savior-like qualities to a candidate. And worst of all, a lot of Christians lost their influence to share the gospel. My prayer for us at Bentry over the next 12 months is that we don't pick and choose which of these we're going to keep. We actually embody all five of these that we're always prayerful, that our whole engagement in politics, in the world, whatever it may be, at your work, it stems from a posture of prayer. We pray before we post. We seek God's heart, and we pray for even those we disagree with. That our posture is always peaceful, that nothing in the world, nothing in politics robs us of our inner peace because we have seen for ourselves that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. He is king and he will never be dethroned. He doesn't have to be voted in and he cannot be voted out. Therefore, we are at peace. We are powerful. Not because of culture, not because of social things. We are powerful from above with God's spirit emboldening us, empowering us to do what he's called the church to do, which is to be a prophetic witness in the world, which is to align the conscience of our world with the vision of God for the world. And we can't do that relying on earthly power. We can only do that relying on heaven's power. And in the midst of all of that, we never lose sight of our purpose. 
our mission, which is to see people who don't yet know Jesus come to know him through our life, our words, to experience and share the love of Jesus, maybe be full on all five cylinders over the next five or 12 months. Always prayerful, always prophetic, always peaceful, always powerful, and always filled with gospel purpose. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, would you help us do this? Help us be a body, the bride of Jesus, filled with your power, your vision for the world, boldness and courage, but love for people, especially for those we disagree with. Why? Because we bear the image of God and our whole life is to be given over to you. No one has absolute control and allegiance from us, only you do. So give us discernment. Draw us deeper into prayer, to praying for people, into our purpose, into the prophetic vocation. Give us discernment. May we never rely on earthly power, but only on your ability, your power to change the world. And may we see people come to know Jesus. Father, do this. Safeguard our church. Help us to keep the main thing the main thing and honor you with all sense of godliness and holiness, peacefulness by the power of your spirit. Even if today, God, somebody is away from Jesus or apart from knowing you, today may it be the day that their lives are surrendered to King Jesus. We are not the Caesar. You, Jesus, are king of our life. We give our heart to you. In Christ's name we pray. And we said together, amen. 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 Can we give Jesus the King of Kings a praise offering? Amen.